I'm Amy, sex educator, somatic sex and relationship coach, and sex shop owner. And I'm April, VP of an international high-end pleasure products company and boss queen sex toy mogul. We're best friends who make our own rules about who we are as sexual beings. With everything from how to be a badass in the bedroom to top tips for bringing your relationship to the next level, we have something just for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Don't forget to head on over to our website at shamelesssex.com for more. And for 15% off of some of our favorite sex toys, use coupon code SHAMELESSPP in all caps at purepleasureshop.com. Hey everyone! Hello, everybody! Welcome to this wonderful dark evening. It is five twenty p.m. and already pitch black. It's true. It's I, kind of it, I, I get hungrier earlier when it gets dark so early. Do you want me to make you dinner? No, it's okay. I just was thinking. I was like, it's got to be like seven or eight, and it's five. Chip, you made the best brunch yesterday. Ooh, we I had know. our. I think we talked about it on the last podcast too because we yeah. were, this is our second day of recording podcast, but we had a brunch for all of our. Uh, wonderful women who are helping to make Shameless Sex Run, our interns and everything. And April makes delicious food. You were a phenomenal cook. I like to cook. Yeah, she's a real good cook. But I was slaving away in the kitchen. Now. But you did help. My dad helped for yeah. a little bit. Oh, uh, yeah. we talk, Yeah, If you haven't listened to the last podcast, listen because you'll learn more about April's dad. Who and my daddy issues. And I kind of saw, I didn't solve any. They always will exist. But I did get some resolve. Some resolve yeah. and also just a bit of clarity and I feel a little bit better about my relationship with my father. Yeah, that's big. I know. It's huge. That's really big. I feel like now I can move on to something else. Mm-hmm. Doing the work. Doing the work. It's about the work, everyone. Today, so today is our uh, our work day for Shameless Sex that we had actually designated to our our book writing day because we are in the process of writing a book, meaning we haven't done anything other than we have a concept and have uh, a timeline, and our timeline keeps getting postponed because we have so much, so many other wonderful things to do. Um, and one thing that we've been working on, so stay tuned, there will be a book and we will spend one of these days and then many, many, many other days writing it. Um, but today, and it was as well as some past days, we've been working on this online workshop and, and our online workshop was once only available for four weeks, but now like a four week series now it is available as a evergreen product. I mean, it's always available online. You can buy it and watch them videos anytime you want to and do the home practices anytime you want to. There's four info pack videos. There's even a bonus guided erotic meditation with yours truly. There's also uh, an, an option to upgrade if you want coaching, but everyone who signs up even without the coaching gets our, gets uh, sex questions automatically answered directly from us. Which I'm a huge fan of these online workshops because you can do it at your own time. You can do it at your own pace. You can do it wherever you are. Let's say you're traveling for a month or a two weeks and you want to get a little bit of education in you during you your trip. Yeah. You just need Wi-Fi and you're set and there's pretty much Wi-Fi everywhere. So I've done several outside of creating this one and this we took a lot of time and effort and we the information that we are providing is really helpful. And there's beautiful redwood trees behind us. We're in my backyard. Yes. So, and yes. the person that filmed it is so good. He's yeah. just brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, and they're awesome. Yeah, you'll you'll yeah. love it. So Go check, check it, it out. Check it out on our website. It's, and we didn't, I don't think we said the name. It's how to be a badass in the bedroom. And this is for female identified folks. For this round, we'll do more videos that or in, in workshop series that are for um, other non-female identified folks as well. But this round is for those who identify as female, and it is all available online. If you go to our website and you click workshop.
workshop. So you go to shamelesssex.com. All info is on there and you essentially get the opportunity to work directly with us. It's true. Yeah. Be a badass in the bedroom, yo. Be that badass. I was a badass in the bedroom this morning by myself with my vibrator. I had four <laughs> orgasms. Hey, you could that that is Well, I had one and then I had another one and then I was like, well, how many could I have? And I was like, I really need to do work. But I was like, wait, you know, I'm about to get my period. So I feel hormonal and... I felt like I just needed the release of like, I felt like I was taking a Xanax. <laughs> I have a question. I have a yeah. question. Xanax. Um, that's your nickname now. What? No, do, please. I hate Xanax. Do the orgasms get stronger or weaker as they go on for you? It varies because I felt like the first one was, uh, if you use a scale, let's use a one to 10 scale was a six. Yeah. The second one was a eight. The third one was a four, and then the last one was probably a 9.25. Okay. Oh, the last one was still a big one. Yeah, awesome. and that's... Where, th- where you do... Okay, let me ask you another question. Yeah. While you were got your... Well, you said you got four. The last one was the fourth one. So after orgasm two or three, you're like, I'm going to give myself another one, but it has to be really good, and you would just keep going until you get that really no, good orgasm. No, I was just focusing on what my body would do uh-huh. and I was I was getting really dist- I was distracting myself with like what I needed to do doing the typical in my head stuff and I was like no focus what's turning me on right now and I was thinking about all these scenarios that, that were hot and I'm really trying to think about my partner when I masturbate now because I feel like that helps me when I'm like getting in intimate with him and in the bedroom and so I've really been thinking about the things that he does that turns me on and that's been helpful also versus what the taxi cab porn versus watching porn or thinking uh-huh. about different things I've been like I, that I used to I like when I was married I never thought about my ex-husband when I would masturbate you when you're married you never thought about your husband at the time yes yeah yes exactly and I think that's good that's and fine previous yeah. no I know I'm yeah. just trying something new yeah trying and actually new. I told my partner that what I because he's like what are you doing I was like well I'm just I was checking emails and masturbating, masturbating. To your and then he's like nemesis. oh really <laughs> yeah I'm like yeah I just had four orgasms he's like what what did you think about what did you fantasize about I was like actually I thought about you and he didn't believe me he's like, like no you didn't I was well, like no I well, did in the past I haven't but today I really did <laughs> uh and you know it's funny because he actually there does does certain things that do turn me on, and I need to be more vocal about that. I need to try to just let him know. Like when he's doing something that does turn you on, to let him know that's turning you on so you'll get more of it? Yeah, maybe uh-huh. not even during, but at, at some point, because I haven't been really good about vocalizing that, but it was really good today when I told him, but it was over the phone, and he didn't believe me. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm serious. You should have FaceTimed him. <laughs> I know. Like you could see all this. And then I thought about when you were talking about your G-spot on the last podcast yeah that we uh just recorded and and then i was like i want i should try to feel my g-spot right now because i did have the potential that i knew i could probably ejaculate Mm. but i didn't want to deal with the sheets because i had a i knew there was laundry already (laughs) and i only have one set of sheets right now. where's that waterproof blanket i gave you I was already in the midst. I didn't want to get out of bed and it was you cold. You got to have that thing right by your bedside. I know. I need to put it under the bed. Actually, that's a good That's a good call. So I don't know why I don't even have one here. It's because I had a dry spell with the, <laughs> the squirting. Where now, not, now you're in a wet spell. Yeah, now I'm in a wet spell because <laughs> I found the exact spot. And here's hoping that I can continue to access that one because it's, it's fun. It's a good time. I still need to get an under the bed restraint system now oh, that yeah. actually fits my bed. Because you got your Cali King. Remember I called you greedy? Yeah, you called me greedy. <laughs> you're greedy. I'm like, I didn't buy it. You don't need that much space. You're just hanging out on one corner of that thing what are we drinking though right now we're drinking the margins one Mouvedre. super yummy we had the chenin blanc Mouvedre. and now we're on the Mouvedre. 
Yes, uh, thank you, uh, Megan Bell. You actually made our work meeting wonderful today. <laughs> I know. We didn't this start only a second glass. Yeah, it's fine. I have to drive, so I'm the only sipping. Yeah, it's true. It's a delicious though. So, if margins wine, everyone, you've heard us talk about it on past episodes. And if you're sick of this, don't worry, we'll keep it short. But if you're sick of this, it means and you haven't tried it yet, then maybe you should actually try. It. I actually yeah. had some folks that I was working with, some clients that. Um, sent me that I was working with them there I was I was their you know their relationship coach and they said by the way margins wine's amazing thanks for the recommendation I've had, I've had people say that too to yeah. me when I'm out and about I tried margins wine I bought a bottle and you can get a discount just by listening by being a listener right now go to marginswine.com use the code shameless sex 10 is it just shameless Shame, I think it's just shameless oh I used to know it I have it on my phone but I, my try favorite. shameless 10 and to get 10% <laughs> off a of three or more and then if that doesn't work try shameless sex 10 and then if you buy six or more try shameless, shameless 15, 15 and you get 15 percent off yes and it's well it's great priced wine it's it's, it's well worth the, the money and yeah. we love our local winemakers in santa cruz but she does ship all over Zewa, all over the country i was like does she ship to new zealand no because we have listeners there we do yeah um which brings me to you have, you have something you want to no, say? No, no. Oh, okay. So everyone, we did a survey on our website and 107 of you answered. The survey was for, again, female, do we say female identified? It's shameless sex 10, shameless sex 15. Oh, right. So I backtrack. I, I digress. It's a shameless sex 10 and shameless sex 15 for the discount on margins wine. Sorry, I didn't, bad. I didn't mean That's to. Good. No, no, this good. is really good, juicy information, though. We, I we love need, it. We do need to know this. No, I know. We do. We. I used to know it. I just forgot. My dog is looking at me like, why aren't you walking me? Okay. <laughs> so this we have the Shameless Sex Female Pleasure Survey. Um, it's a, our own kind of homemade survey. That So this is not like a very professional research study, but it is our own thing that we just, because we have the reach to ask our listeners yeah. and find out what they're interested in. So this is just for female bodied folks who answered, who are 18 and up. 107 of you answered. So we got some really interesting info that I would like to share with all of you. So I'm just going to go through and share a little bit of what we got. So out of 107 of you, very interesting. So when we did our survey for our listeners, so this is a separate survey, and we actually try and find out who our demographic was. 600 of you answered. And I think out of that 600, most people were just hetero identified as heterosexual. There was a, a handful or like some of them were heteroflexible or bisexual. And then we got a couple that were pansexual and um, queer, et cetera, et cetera. When it's just female-bodied folks, though, this is very interesting. Just that was, So that was when it was all genders and all sexes. When it's just female-bodied folks, the largest demographic is, so that's 38% of the 107 that answered, are actually bi-curious. They're mostly heterosexual with some curiosity. The second runner-up is heterosexual, and the third runner-up is actually bisexual. So when you turn it to just women, all of a sudden you add a little more heteroflexibility in our demographic. So there's that piece. Um, one of the questions we asked are, what are all the ways that you have orgasms? Check all that apply. The top ways that female body folks that answered out of 107 are having orgasms are fingers externally, my own, a vibrator or sex toy externally, and fingers and penetration at the same time. Um, those are the top three. Oh. Then next runner up would be uh, fingers externally from a partner or lover. Uh, mouth or oral from a partner or lover or penetration from a penis i can't come i've tried with my own like rubbing my clit Fingers. while i'm being penetrated yeah oh while you're being penetrated yeah, while yeah. i'm being penetrated rubbing my own like i i do like the aesthetics of it 
for some reason, I just cannot have an orgasm from doing that, even though I love external stim. Interesting. It's yeah. so bizarre. I mean, it drives me crazy. I'm like, why is this working? Is this thing on? I well, think I'm just over. Maybe there's, there's a sensory a lot going overload. On. Like for me, when I am, if I'm using a vibrator on my clitoris and um and I'm and I'm while I'm having sex with my partner, um, I actually have my best orgasms when they almost completely pull out or they only leave their their cock in for like one inch, like mm. an inch inside where it's just hitting the external nerve endings, uh, and they're not even really moving because if they're all the way in, it like it almost like somehow kind of pulls up my nerve endings in a way that's distracting from the orgasm. There's something about it that it deflects. I don't know if that's the right word, but the, um, the stimulation that I'm actually getting on the clitoris from my mm. vibrator, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So that's how uh, all the ways people are having orgasms. There's other ways that people are having orgasms. Like there, one person said orgasm from anal penetration with a penis. One person said penetration just from and grinding. Um, one person said, fisting you know another person said fingers internally from a lover so that's but these are the top ways okay someone let the dog out april's letting the dog out is this is ridiculous if you've never gone to our instagram and seen monty our dog ma- mascot who's also looks like a teddy bear who's also 14 years old and is also quite obnoxious today <laughs> he's just gonna scratch at the door by the way all right so next question was what is the easiest way for you to orgasm the easiest way, there's two that are, um, that were the top two easiest ways are fingers externally, my own, and vibrator sex toy my, externally. So something, so oh. external stimulation on a labia, clitoris, you know, on the vulva from either a vibrator, sex toy, or fingers. That's the easiest way for fem- the female body folks to answer, the answer to have an orgasm. The next runner up would be mouth and oral, then fingers and penetration at the same time. Okay. So Interesting. Those, so there's that one. What is your preferred way to orgasm? So this is where it changes. This okay. is preferred, right? So we know what their easiest is and the many ways that they have an orgasm. A lot of it is external. Or if it's internal, it's combining. It's actually with the combination of external stimulation. Okay. The, what they prefer, though, is the number one, penetration from a penis is what they prefer. It's not the easiest, and it's not one of the top ways they have the orgasm, but this is what they prefer. This is the first time I've heard these results, too, so yeah. I'm with the April's listeners. Learning. That's very The other top strange. preferred way is mouth oral from a partner. Very interesting, too. Another preferred way, like the, the third runner-up, would be fingers and penetration at the same time. So I'm just going to make some guesses. This is a total guess, a total projection, so please don't quote me on this because I'm not a researcher. But these three things, the top things, have to do with another person's satisfaction mm. in your sex life. Yeah, and I know that there's connection there, but these are not the easiest ways these people are having orgasm, nor are they the top ways or the most common ways they have an orgasm. But these are how they prefer. It is more difficult, in my experience, to have an orgasm with a partner than on my own. I do prefer though to have an orgasm with a partner. It just is harder because there's another person involved. So I am thinking about their pleasure as well. But you preferred it. So I'm not just, yeah, I'm not even talking about preferring because the other questions aren't even alone or with a partner. Like you, okay. they said finger, you know, the top ways that people are having the orgasms are either on vibrator or fingers on the, externally on the vulva is what we're seeing. And that could be with a partner still there. Right. Mm. That doesn't mean that it's alone, but that could that probably is more often alone. But what they're saying here is that their preferred way to have an orgasm is from a penis is the number one. And number two would be mouth and oral from a partner. So whoever they're playing with. And number three would be fingers and penetration. So 
I get what you're saying. And to me, I'm just like, I'm, I'm already making some assumptions that there's a, there's a lot going to play here. And yes, connection is, is important. And I think there's also a component that the best sex is when someone does it for us with their own body, not from a sex toy, with their penis, with their mouth, with their fingers, then it's the best sex. It's, it makes it great sex and connected sex when really it actually isn't the easiest, the best or mo- best the easiest, easiest way, way. Right. The most successful, it doesn't make the most sense for female bodies. So that was interesting. Well, but wait, there's more. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so the most common way that they orgasm, similar to as above, fingers externally, and then second runner up, same thing with a vibrator sex toy. So I, I just reworded those similar questions, right? How do they have their best orgasms? Like the top creme de la creme, like this is my best orgasm. Once again, penis for the winner. No way. And then the second runner up is fingers and penetration at the same time. So some sort of penetration. Third runner up is mouth oral. So this kind of, again, goes with that same idea. So penis, then penetration. So that could be, and then mouth. So penetration could be with fingers? No, it's with feet. So it's fingers and penetration at the same time is the second runner up. Okay. Penis alone is is their best orgasm. And also coincides with what they think is what they prefer. Mm. But that's not how they're having most of their orgasms. Wow. Okay, last one that I will say. Actually, oh God, there's two more. Oh my God, there's multiple categories. I'm just giving all the results now and then we'll be done with this. Okay, so please, I said, please check all that apply to you. So this one, I actually have to go look at this other thing. Um, But one of them, I asked the question of, and these are the top things, the different statements on what pleasure feels like to them. The top statement I got is uh, that people responded to that they identify with is I feel a lot of pleasure from penetration alone. Just having something inside of me feels amazing, hmm. which I do not identify with. Me at neither. All. But I know women who do. Me too. And fifty five percent of these people said that, which makes sense. I think it isn't it something uh, around eighty to eighty five percent of most female identified folks have an orgasm externally so that is kind of in line they say obviously yeah. it changes no, as but well this is, but this is not though this is this is essentially saying that just having something inside of your vault mm. or your vaginal canal which a lot of folks don't really identify or that i've talked to and that i don't have a lot of nerve endings inside unless there's like a lot of pro- like the nerve endings is where i identify as it just feels amazing right, right. And that's not inside. Just having something inside of me does not feel amazing. But enough for 55% of these people, and I know a number of women who would agree, my mom too. Hey, mom. She said, she's like, I'm one of those women. I was like, damn you, mother. Yeah, she's <laughs> lucky. Yeah. Um, and then, so the next runner up, this is another internal piece. That is, I, is, I feel a lot of pleasure when my G-spot is, is stimulated. Is 50% of the people said that too. G-spot stimulation? Yeah, from G-spot stimulation. And then another, and then another top category was I feel a lot of pleasure from external from external stimulation. So these are just like some other key ways that people are having um, having yummy pleasure. And then there's some that they didn't really identify with. Like what's this one? Um, I have a hard time feel, feeling pleasure from penetration. I think that was that one that only eight point five percent people. Well, I answered. think the takeaway from this is really, I mean, what I'm thinking is most interesting part of this survey is that we identify with penises as well we as um, i'm speaking as a female identified individual um with giving us pleasure however it isn't the easiest and you know or the most common or the most common and it makes sense because i think that it is there's something powerful 
when another energy, another physical being is involved in your sexual experience, it just adds another level and another dimension Mm -hmm. and, or multiple partners. I think that, uh, that it's, I wonder what, what those 107 people and if can this survey still be taken by other folks yeah it's on our website if you go to our homepage, you can still yeah. it's just go down to the bottom of the give homepage us more information listeners yeah. that would be great to and, assess and it's interesting though like i it, the results are also baffle me because if 55 percent, i feel a lot of pleasure from penetration alone just having something inside of me feels amazing if that is true then it would make sense when they say their best orgasms are from a, a penis or from having something inside of them, right? But that's not their most common or their easiest. It has nothing to do with those things. So like, it just, there's something else going on that is beyond the actual physical experience and that is happening with the, the mind's conception or perception, is what I meant to say, of, of what, they, what it thinks is supposed to happen or is the most, the most attractive. Um, and then I'll just say my last two and I'll be done. Um, okay. So my last two, how do people have their first orgasm? Um, 41% said exploring with their own hands and it, 33% said rubbing objects on my genitals when I was a kid. Mm. April is one of them. I did. Um, most of them did not say their first penetrative sex experience, although eight people did, but that's only 7% of them. And last one, what phrase best describes your typical orgasm? The top one is pleasurable contractions in the genitals. We kind of assumed that would be it. Um, But the second runner up, so the top one was 70% pleasurable contractions in the genitals, which is like your typical orgasmic experience. The second runner up is just a nice release. Hmm. That's actually 43%. That's like what, you know, what female ejaculation is to me. Um, It's just a nice release. And, And if it's, then I can have it by itself. And then when it's combined with the pleasurable contractions in the genitals, that is a, is is a whole different ball game but they are separate entities for me or they can be combined they're separate for me yeah you too yeah yeah um and then 24 percent said that they're so what best des- describes our typical orgasm is wave after wave of small orgasms leading to one big one like you had this morning there's that netflix <laughs> documentary uh show that's 17 minutes long that talks about female orgasm i think it's called uh i talked to i've talked about it before uh, it investigates orgasm and it a lot of the folks interviewed talked about waves as well yeah a mm-hmm. wave experience yeah. and so i i don't think of it as a wave i think of it as a rush i've experienced the waves i've definitely had that before um yeah, and I, like uh, meaning building of intensity or like the waves. They're like waves of small, really pleasurable, um, orgasmic experiences that that feel like I would call them like smaller or- or- orgasms. Almost like you're in this orgasmic space for a while, but you're riding waves where it gets like stronger and lighter and stronger and lighter. Mm. But then it blows up into like one bigger one. I mean, I've had an explosion. I've experienced everything. I've experienced the 15 minute like. I'm on another planet having orgasm. By the way, this was completely sober. And, like I've, I've, I've done it all, but not all of them are easily accessible. I tap into my pussy so much when I'm sober. Yeah, because like, you feel it. Well, it just the nerve endings are activated, and I'm not. I don't know. I, I get out of my head though when I have a little bit of wine, or you know, if it's cannabis, I'll get out of my head more and more feel the actual touch. Yeah, I think that uh, sober sex though really does. You, yeah. you can have stronger connection to your pussy. Yeah. 
Totally. It's good that we're talking about all this research because the our podcast, guest today, yeah. I know, is brilliant. She's just amazing. And you're going to learn so much. She's uh, she, honestly, I think, one of the smartest humans we've ever, I, I mean, me, let me talk for myself. Like, I've had professors and interactions with some of, like, extremely intelligent people she just is so knowledgeable yeah yeah she's amazing and she um yeah oh god the dog is whining again i'm gonna ignore you puppy uh she you'll hear more i'll read her bio in a second um but yeah it's perfect because a lot of her stuff is talking to sex researchers a new york times best-selling author on multiple levels and Uh she just uh released another book so which brings me to before we actually read her bio, she actually talks. She just wrote an article that included OMGS in it. Oh, yeah. Um, so she wrote an article on Psychology Today, and it's called What Sex Tech Is and Why It Matters, A Conversation with Sex Tech Revolutionary by uh, Bryony Cole. <laughs> I didn't say that right. Um, so our guest today is Wednesday Martin, PhD. Um, she's author of Step Monster and her recent book, Untrue. But this article that she wrote about is talking about sex tech and why it matters in that there's all these new tech tech programs about sexuality, about pleasure, about education. And she talks about OMGS on here. Um, and what she, one thing she says is, so she says, sex tech has been rem- remarkable in opening up awareness and increasing access to education around women's bodies and their sexual pleasure. A great example is OMGS, an interactive sexual education platform. Prior to OMGS's study in 2016 on women's sexual pleasure and how they bring themselves to orgasm, no study had been done on specifics of women's pleasure. The study took 2,000 women ages 18 to 95, as well as the latest science to sexually on uh, sexuality to reveal different techniques techniques for masturbation and gave names to them. These were techniques that never had language around before. So this is like was re- revolutionary that and I mean we've seen that for our own use with OMGS and then people that we've s- sent it to, you know, our our own clients and fans advocate for it. Yeah, it because it is so mind-blowing. Yeah, it's amazing. So you've heard us talk about this, but if you want to learn more about what Wednesday Martin has to say, go to Psychology Today and look up what sex tech is and why it matters. You can learn more about that and go check out OMGS, go to omgs.com backslash shameless. Our listeners get $5 off too. And it is just like she says, revolutionary in that um, it is teaching people about real pleasure through videos, through actual sex research. And you can learn new techniques, even if you feel like you have it all dialed in, you can add more amazing things to the menu, have even more awesome sex with yourself. You and and I, Mm -hmm. and even somebody as awesome and tuned in as Wednesday Martin found OMGS is offerings interesting and helpful. So I have a mini girl crush on Wednesday Martin. I don't, I'm painfully straight. I have a mini she's beautiful and she's so intellectual. I, I'm like kind of sapiosexual. Like I, I like, br- I like brains. I'm really, really attracted and yeah. not, but not like, um, unapproachable folks. So those ones that are, like there's some folks that I'm intimidated by. I'm not sex wouldn't be sexually attracted to them for that, but for people who are like outgoing and sweet and you know brilliant on top of yes. that, like oh. personality is everything for yeah. me, everything. And she's also well, soon you'll find out if yeah. you're listening right now. She's so relatable and just a wonderful human to interact with. Yeah, she's wonderful. Yeah. So should I read her bio? Please. Time. All right, everyone. 
So Wednesday Martin, PhD, and she actually made a point to say that she doesn't put that there to be a snob. Um, but Wednesday Martin, PhD, is a writer and feminist cultural c- critic. She is the author of seven books, including her instant number one New York Times bestseller, Primates of Park Avenue, and her recent book, Untrue, Why Nearly Everything We Believe About Women, Lust, and Adultery is Wrong, and How the New Science Can Set Us Free. She has written for publications including the New York Times, The Atlantic, and the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy. She has appeared on Good Morning America, The Today Show, CNN, the BBC, NPR, and more to discuss her work on gender, motherhood, female sexuality, and popular culture. To learn more, visit WednesdayMartin.com. And here we go. All right, everyone, it's episode time with the wonderful Wednesday Martin, who April wants to call Wednesday Adams. I just outed you. I have. I called you Wednesday Adams a few times. You can. You can do that. It's a habitual reaction because of the Adams family. I was a fan for years. It's a normal reaction, and I support you 100% (laughs) in calling me Wednesday Adams. Go ahead. I answer to it. But if you Google Wednesday Adams, you will not find the wonderful Wednesday Martin. So we suggest looking up Wednesday Martin and not Wednesday Adams. (laughs) So you know about uh, the, we read the bio to you, so you all know information about Wednesday. So we discovered Wednesday by listening to Chris Ryan's podcast, who we're friends with Chris Ryan, and heard her on there. And we were like, oh my God, we're obsessed with her. We want her on here. And Isn't he he, great? Oh, he's amazing. Yeah, you've done a couple of things. He brings so many people together. Lots and lots of people together. Yeah. He's a real, yeah, he's a real, intru- he's a gatherer, yeah. I guess. A gatherer and really helps people to think outside of the box, which is really, really wonderful. Okay. And he does it in his, his kind of like nonchalant, fuck it, got it. <laughs> I, I feel like my brain grows when I listen to him. I'm like, whoa, I never thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. yeah. And your episode and was really them. smart and beautiful. I loved it. Oh, I'm glad you guys listened in. I'm so glad he had me on. And I can't tell you how many relationships I have thanks to Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Casilda. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Chris and Casilda strike again. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. So let's let's talk about your book that is out, Untrue, Why Nearly Everything We Believe About Women, Lust, and Adultery is Wrong, and How the New Science Can Set Us Free. What inspired this? Oh, my goodness. So many things. I kind of, I mean, I talked to Chris about this a little bit, but we can go into it more. I, I've really made a career in a way, not intentionally, out of looking at women we love to hate. You know, I looked at um, women with stepchildren to try to figure out why we have so much hostility toward them. I looked at rich moms on the Upper East Side in my book, Primates of Park Avenue. Um, And then I thought, well, let's see, I've looked at stepmothers and I've looked at rich mommies. Who else do we really hate? And the answer was so clear. We just really hate women who, and I say this in quotation marks, cheat. Uh, women who refuse monogamy, they're just such lightning rods um, for our hostility and judgment. Still, you know, um, this far into feminism, um, this far removed from the great second wave of feminism, well into the third or fourth wave, we still uh, have so much animosity as a culture toward women who say, I'm not going to be monogamous. Uh, And they either do it on the DL or they do it openly. And I just wanted to know what's behind that resentment that we have with those women. Um, Why do they trigger us? And what can our anger at them tell us about ourselves? Right. So I set out to write it. And as often happens, 
um, I realized, well, since I decided to do this, the ground has been completely changing underneath my feet. There's this thing going on now called consensual non-monogamy. There's this thing going on now called polyamory. Um, you know, and there are these um, young women now who, not all of them young, but, you know, infidelity in quotes means something very different um, to younger women than it did to women, even in my generation. So I was like, well, you know what, actually, this is cool that this idea about cheating or being untrue um, or not being monogamous, that it's changed so much just in the last 10 years or so means there's something to this, really. And I got to dig into it. Uh, so that's what I did. You know, when I interviewed 30 experts um, and I spoke to about that many women themselves between the ages of, um, you know, I think 19 and 90 something um, about infidelity and about their experiences of sexuality. And, um, you know, it was really quite the immersive journey. I went to some sex parties. I went to an all day workshop on consensual non-monogamy. I just, I really threw myself into what does it mean um, to be a woman who doesn't want to be monogamous? What's the evolutionary prehistory of it? What happens to you if you do it today? What's the future of women who aren't monogamous? It was a really fun adventure. But, you know, the the title untrue is a play on words because it also refers to all the bogus science and social science and mythology around female sexuality. So I kind of go beyond infidelity and look at all the untrue things that we believe about female sexuality in general. Wow, that was a really long answer. No, that's perfect. <laughs> what it, so what what is what is what is junk science? We tell our listeners what that means. You said the bogus science in, in your um, the write up about your book. You talk mm-hmm. about junk science. What does that mean? Yeah, I think I think we like to think of science as pure and objective, and a lot of scientists and historians of science uh, lately over the last decades have helped us understand that science is always tethered to its cultural moment, and that a lot of times. Uh, science changes um, as society changes. So, for example, in the 1960s, we had this notion um, that we evolved in a monogamous pair bond and that it was monogamy that made us human um, and that, you know, um, early man used to go out and hunt and bring the hunt back to his woman and their baby in the cave, right? And um, we had all kinds of scientific um, theories about that. It was taught in anthropology classes. Um, And fast forward um, a bit when we got more data and we had more information and we learned that we actually evolved as cooperative breeders. We didn't evolve in a monogamous pair bond. Um, That happened relatively late in our evolutionary prehistory and that we really probably much more likely um, evolved in these sort of loose rangy bands of people who raised their children cooperatively, um, mated cooperatively and multiply. Um, And that's probably the reason uh, that we're here as a species because, you know, we we developed this really uh, canny sexual and social strategy that allowed homo sapiens to flourish. So, um, you know, 
to think how much the science about monogamy itself has changed just over the last decade gives you a good indication of, um, you know, just how vulnerable science and social science are to their social moment and how much they need to be revisited. And so a lot of untrue is having a look at what female scientists and social scientists have been discovering about female sexuality over the last few decades, or in some cases over the last few years. And it's all pretty eye-opening. I just like to say that, you know, the more women who get into social science, whether it's, you know, sex research or primatology or sociology, uh, the more, you know, it's not that guys were not doing a good job, but it's that women come into these fields and they sort of bring new forms of empathy and curiosity, and they kind of bring new priorities and, and just, um, like I said, curiosities to the science and social science and just enhance it in that way. So that that's been happening over the last decades. And I really wanted everybody to know about it, you know, whether you're a Cosmo reader, or like a New York Times book review reader, or, you know, whatever it is, whether you read Refinery29 online, I wanted um, women and men to have access to this information. Well, with the so, internet, you can get so much junk research uh, on anything. So yeah, and, and you can get great research, but that's like out of context. So what I wanted to do is take some of this research that I thought, wow, you know, it would be really cool if the lay person had access to this, like research from sex research journals, research from anthropologists, um, you know, studies from primatologists about how often bonobos have sex cross it all over um so that the regular person has access to this information i've always said you know in the subtitle line book is that how the new science can set you free i just think science belongs to everybody um and you have to make it relevant to people and when you do it will really blow their minds and help them understand themselves better so that's what i try to do with step monster um in Primates of Park Avenue, I used a lot of evolutionary biology and cultural anthropology to explain maternal behaviors. And now I'm trying to do that with female sexual behaviors and untrue. So obviously you talk a lot about how human beings um, developed a lot of our our sexual characteristics, our traits from primates, right? That's a huge yeah. part of, of your research. And bonobos in particular, which Chris Ryan talked a lot about as well, yeah. they're our closest primate relative um, and other species as well. But um, can you talk a little bit about how they inspire this newer perspective on female sexuality? Yeah, what a great question. Um, thanks. I always like to talk about bonobos. So a lot of people have heard about bonobos. Yay, bonobos. Um, a lot of people know about bonobos. If you don't, bonobos look like chimps, except they're a little bit taller and slimmer. Um, and um, bonobos in the wild are only found in Democratic Republic of Congo. So, you know, which is formerly Zaire, where there's been a lot of political upheaval and unrest and violence for many, many years. And that meant that it was hard to study bonobos and people didn't really have a great understanding of them for a long time. And people tended to focus more on chimps. And what we know about chimps is that they're a male dominant species. Um, the females uh, can have relatively abject lives compared to the males. Um, you know, chimps regularly practice infanticide 
The males regularly sexually coerce the females. Um, and if you are a, a female chimp and you transfer from your natal group where you were born into a new troop, um, you know, you can you're really the low animal on the totem pole and you're subjected to a lot of harassment, violence, and you might even be killed. Um, so this is what we were basing a lot of our understanding of the evolutionary origins of human social and sexual behavior on, uh, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, let's look at chimps and they were drawing conclusions. Um, some primatologists that, um, you know, what we could learn from, Chimps was basically a more subtle version of this, but basically that male violence was innate and that it was almost as if people like to use chimps as a test case to assert that it was, quote, natural, unquote, for um, males to sexually coerce females, for females to be um, subservient to males. All right. So people start to study bonobos. And we realize that bonobos, unlike chimps, um, they don't resolve their issues with violence. They tend to resolve them with sex. So if some chimps come across, you know, uh, a cache of food or another troop of chimps, you can bet that there's a high likelihood there's going to be violence. However, when bonobos come upon another troop of bonobos or a cache of food, they deal with the tension by having sex with each other. And that's how they dispel the tension. They work on their social bonds. They all have sex and then they eat. So you'll see them, you know, whether and bonobos tend to act the same um, under human care as they do in the wild. So thankfully, we have some bonobos under human care in zoos. And you can see if you go to, say, the San Diego Zoo, you'll see the bonobos. You fling some food in. And you'll see them have sex and then they'll eat the food. Okay. But there was more still to discover about bonobos. Everybody said, oh, cool. Bonobos are like the Pacific swinger apes. They're, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're the, like, they're the sex apes. But Amy Parrish and some other primatologists started to study bonobos in depth. And Amy's been studying bonobos for about 30 years now. And she started to realize not just that bonobos are the sexy ape, but much more specific things about bonobos. She noticed that the females uh, in all the populations she looked at, whether it was in Stuttgart or Frankfurt or in San Diego, the females always ate first and the females always got groomed first. And some of the females got groomed so often that like every time you get groomed, a little bit of your hair gets pulled off. So they were and like so she, naked. They were like Shrek. Some <laughs> of the females were like Shrek. And she was like, that's interesting because eating first and getting groomed more is, you know, sort of a metric of dominance. So she started looking a little more and she noticed, she thought that was something was going on uh, she noticed that there was violence among bonobos. And so she said, well, let me look at the veterinary record. And in 25 cases of near lethal violence or serious violence, the violence was always inflicted on males by females. She noticed that males almost never tried to aggress against females, which is completely the opposite of chimps. There were no attempts at infanticide. There was no infanticide. Um, and that the males did not attempt to sexually coerce the females. She's like, what's going on? It's 
almost like we have a female dominant species. Um, So she tried to put that idea out into the world and there was tremendous resistance. And some people said, well, it's not that. It's more that bonobos don't really have a hierarchy. And some other primatologists said, this is my favorite one, some primatologists who said, bonobos, um, it's not that they don't have a hierarchy and it's not that they're a female dominant species. It's that the males let the females think that they're dominant. Uh-huh. That's what I like to call bending over backwards science. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there were there was this tussle. Meanwhile, we had to get at the idea of why. Why does this happen? Um, if bonobos and chimps are are both so closely related to us, how can they both be so different? And it was a lot of different things. Um, but one thing that Amy noticed is that when male and female bonobos, when a, when a female was simultaneously solicited by a male and another female, in other words, you're a female bonobo, life is pretty good because this can happen pretty often, pretty often when you're a female bonobo. Another female bonobo and a male bonobo will come up to you at the same time and put their arms around you because that's how a bonobo solicits for sex. Mm-hmm. They put the arm around the other bonobo and then you either kind of walk away or you get down to it <laughs> whenever most uh, another primatologist uh, noticed this as well so it wasn't just amy parish who noticed it that the females when they were solicited by both the male and female at the same time the females were overwhelmingly likely to choose to have sex with the female and they seem to really enjoy this. And what primatologists discovered was it's because female bonobos have these externalized, they seem large to us, uh, clits, right? So the female bonobo clitoris is forward facing, it's up high and it's very externalized. And so when they press them together as they do, and it's called G to G contact, genito genital contact, they, they're often like shrieking and getting really into it. It seems to feel really good. So the hypothesis was, well, they do that with each other more often than they do it with males because it feels good. But there was another thing that happened as well. When the females had sex with each other, they were building a social bond. And they were doing it often enough that the females become intensely socially bonded with each other and they build a natural power base through sex and are able to dominate the males to such an extent that the females eat first, the females get groomed more, the males never, almost never um, attempt violence against the females. If they do, they learn really quickly that they can't do that. And the males do not sexually coerce the females. However, Amy noted, Amy Parrish noted that the females sexually coerce the males. And she told me that it is not infrequent um, that she has seen females insist and insist and insist and solicit a male who's resistant over and over and over until he's just worn down and then have sex with him and he will give distress vocalizations and try to get away. Hmm. So what does this tell us about this this narrative that we had for a long time that men were naturally sexually dominant over women that male sexual coercion of women was to be expected and that it was to be expected that males basically used power to control uh, females in many species, including humans, right? Amy's work really forces us to rethink this. What does it mean 
that our closest non-human primate relatives are basically living in a lesbian matriarchy that is the original hookup culture. (laughs) Something for us to think about. (laughs) So in On True, I talk about bonobos a lot, and then I take my readers uh, to a party where women act a little bit like bonobos. I take them to an all-women's roving sex party um, called Skirt Club, mm-hmm. where most of the women um, are, I, they identify as a two on the Kinsey scale, meaning like mm-hmm. mostly heterosexual. And a lot of them are married to men or in long-term relationships with men, but they like to go to these uh, roving uh, parties called Skirt Club. And they're having these kind of thrilling, exciting, one-off, one-time sexual experiences with other women. And I believe uh, building a power base while they do it. So, you know, untruths like that, Mm -hmm. using the primatology and then applying it um, to humans, showing us how the science is really relevant, sorry, to what we do ourselves. And that all-exclusive, all-female sex party, it's not squirt club, it's skirt club? (laughs) Is that... I thought you said Squirt Club. I was like, I love this. That would be really cool also. to. I, I think Squirt Club could be a sub party within Skirt Club. And yeah. for all I know, it already is. But I went to Skirt Club, um, which, yeah, is a roving sex party started by a woman who calls herself Genevieve Lejeune. And she was she's from London and she used to um, go to these sex parties with her male partner. She's now married to somebody else. And she wanted to explore her curiosity and interest in being with other women. And she wanted to do it sort of away from the prying eyes of men. She found that when she was at sex clubs where there were men, it changed the dynamic a lot. So she founded Skirt Club. And so one of the things I do in Untrue is take readers to Skirt Club and show them what it's all about and lift the veil, if you will. Yes. And so by lifting the veil, that you're, you're demonstrating or suggesting that, um, and this is the premise of the book, that women are no more naturally monogamous than men. And, um, and same as it goes for libidos, right? That, they're, that the, the belief is that men have these high libidos and that women don't, and that that's actually not. That's un- the untrue piece there, too. That is the untrue piece. Yeah, those are the, so one of the things that I loved about uh, Skirt Club, now I'm forever going to think of it as Squirt Club. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> um, extra, wet. The, yeah. extra wet. Extra wet. Extra excited. Um One of the things that I really loved about going to Skirt Club is it was sort of a living laboratory for what I was learning from the sex research. So, for example, Lisa Diamond's research uh, talks about female sexual fluidity and how we all have an orientation and that's a real thing. But a lot of women within their orientation are kind of fluid. Their orientation doesn't provide the last word on who they're attracted to. And if the setting is right and if the ecology is right um, and the feelings right and the lighting is good or whatever, um, that women might, you know, um, women who are assumed assumed heterosexual um, might like adventure with women. Um, Some other sex research has found that female sexuality is just a lot more adventurous than we thought. You know, a lot of sex research had painted women into this corner and presumed that they were more monogamous. But I get in on true, I get into all the new research, which shows that female sexuality um, in the right circumstances is every bit uh, as adventurous as male sexuality and as sort of assertive and bold, depending on the container that it's happening in. And Skirt Club was 
a container where I saw that female sexuality um, is fluid, that it's very adventurous, that it can be really assertive, um, and that women love variety and novelty of sexual experience every bit um, as much as men do. And certainly all the women at this party um, were begging the question, um, you know, what does female infidelity mean? What does it mean in 2018? Um, how does it, it mean different things that it meant even 10 or 20 years ago? Um, and where is it going? Um, some of these women uh, tell their partners that they're going to skirt club. Some of them don't tell their partners. So it is, like I said, a fascinating living laboratory of female sexuality. And I wanted readers to understand it and sort of you can give people the sex research and the primatology and the anthropology, and it's all really interesting, right? But you have to really show them how it's related to their own lives. Mm -hmm. And that's what Untrue is about. You talked about on, on Chris Ryan's podcast too, and I, and I, I listened to it and I loved it. And you talked about the female erection in the morning and how there is extra yeah. blood flow. And oh, yeah. I'm happy yeah. that you, you, you mentioned that because I wake up with, I feel like with a female boner, like you on, wake up with a girl boner as yeah. August McLaughlin calls it. Yeah. So August McLaughlin wrote this great book called girl boner. <laughs> and, um, I presume, I haven't read it, although I think she's terrific, but I presume that she gets into what I get into in Untrue, which is the research of Dr. Helen um, O'Connell, right, who's an Australian urologist, who, when she was doing her surgeries, she was always told, okay, be super careful when you're doing this urology surgery not to damage the nerve supply to the penis, because then the guy won't have sexual sensation and that would be a disaster. Agreed, right? That would be a disaster. So she started to ask, okay, how do I protect the nerve supply to the clitoris? And her colleagues and teachers basically said, um, we don't know. And so that got her thinking, what is the nerve supply to the clitoris? And people basically said to her, well, with very little institutional support and funding, why don't you figure that out? <laughs> so for many years, uh, Helen O'Connell did try to figure that out. And ultimately, um, you guys are probably well aware of this. In 2005, she wrote a paper that was published in the United States, and she revealed the entire internal structure of the female clitoris, right? So we had thought that it was this little button. And Helen O'Connell revealed that the part that you can see with your naked eye is really just the ticket to the roller coaster. And almost all of the clitoris is internal and it's amazingly dense with nerve receptor cells that it's just there to enhance sensation and to help us be orgasmic and multiply orgasmic. Um, and that, you know, to consider that we didn't know this most basic fact about female sexual anatomy until 2005, mm -hmm. that we didn't have, I think we didn't have a three-dimensional model of it until 2009, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, I always like to say, okay, here's why I'm a feminist. We um, sent a man to the moon, put a rover on Mars and mapped the entire human genome mm -hmm. <laughs> before, we, before we understood female sexual anatomy. Mm -hmm. You know what? You know why? Because those were our priorities. Mm -hmm. 
So that's pretty sobering and it's pretty much of a bummer, but I prefer to look at it as, and in spite of that, nevertheless, Helen O'Connell persisted Mm -hmm. and granted it happened at a late date, but now we know what we know about the clitoris, thanks to her, thanks to Mal Harrison, um, thanks to August McLaughlin, thanks to all these other people helping um, cross the information over. But I, I, I just said, you've got to be kidding me. When my friend Latham Thomas, who's the doula and um, sexual health educator, told me about it, I was already writing this book. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And I said, how is this possible? You know, I remember when I took my because I did my first I took my first human sexuality class probably in 2003. There was no information about the clitoris being more than this the little nub. And then in 2000 and then I went to San Francisco State and minored in human sexuality. Still no still no clitoris whole clitoris. And then when was that? It, that was like 2005, six. They, they still weren't talking yeah. about it. 2008, uh-huh. I did my um, certification to be a, a sex educator. That was a 60-hour program that was very you know, up-to-date, accurate information, still no clitoral structure. And that was 2008. So you're saying 2009 was when they really had the kind of I 3D believe, model. I believe that 2009 um, is when the French sex educator um, – decided to develop this 3D model and make it available online. And today um, you can go online and Google um, 3D printer specs, uh, human female clitoris, and you can download those specs now and take it to a 3D printer shop and, and get it 3D printed. But you know, my kids know about it. I have an 11-year-old boy and a 17-year-old boy. They know all about it, but <laughs> it's it's not like they're learning about it in sex ed because yeah. it's not like we have sex ed, right? Yeah. We're still living in the shadow of when Reagan transitioned mm-hmm. us into abstinence-only mm-hmm, sex, yeah. quote, education, miseducation, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is, it's, it's extraordinary to me, though, that you specialized in it Um, And that you didn't know about it. And, you know, American American medical knowledge uh, didn't didn't really grapple with this fact, even when Helen O'Connell wrote this big paper in 2005 and the American Neurological Association said it's they basically said it's shameful that we are only now getting this um, information and they did the right thing. Uh, But, you know. I'm told that there are still some medical textbooks without these updated illustrations of the human female clitoris. So we're still laboring in darkness and your podcast um, is, you know, and people like you are doing a lot to dispel it. And, but it just shows you like, we really don't know who women are sexually and there's something wonderful about that and something terrible about it. And in On True, I sort of focus on how wonderful it is and what an opportunity it is to cross over the new science, but it can feel discouraging sometimes. Mm-hmm. What, do, what do you say for, yeah, well, discouraging and... <laughs> I, I mean, banged my head on my desk. Yeah, like, oh God. Yeah, some, yeah, sometimes I do that. Definitely do that too. It's like two steps forward, one step back, sometimes three steps mm-hmm. back. How do we end up here again? Um, and, and I, I mean, I can't even say that I've been here for many of the generation, you know, the, the times when there's been worse times and better times, you know? So it, I think there's that understanding too, that you, you go into more from the anthropological perspective yeah. of you know, the idea that like things are better than ever for, for women and, 
I mean, maybe better than the Victorian era, but, (laughs) you know, there are a lot of, uh, yeah. So to your point about history and also, you know, I think one of the things that I've been at pains to do my whole career and that I do in untrue, um, is that I always look at the cross-cultural data. Like I look at different places. So whenever people say, Oh, what are you talking about? The U S it's a great place to be a woman. You know, we invented feminism. Um, women are doing great here. Uh, when you look at the cross-cultural data, um, you see that there are places in the world where um, a woman can have more than one sexual partner at the same time. She can be married and have a lover or lovers and not risk lethal violence. Mm-hmm. That's better than we can say here. Mm-hmm. There are places in the world where a woman can be married to a man, be pregnant by another man, have the baby and nobody says a word about it, as opposed to here, where at the very best, she would be subjected to a paternity test and divorced. Um, and so filled we, with shame. And, and filled with shame, right. So when we look at the cross-cultural data, we see that it really is um, very inaccurate to say, we have it great here, uh, we're enlightened, uh, it's better to be a woman here than anywhere else in the world. In fact, you know, in this country, women have relatively low rates of, uh, we have relatively low rates of female labor force participation. We have relatively low rates of female political participation. I mean, we did an amazing thing in the house recently, but we still, uh, compared to the rest of the world, um, we rank something like 100th out of 200 countries for female political participation and something like 86th Um, out of 180 countries for female labor force participation. And women in this country um, can be subjected to lethal violence for exercising sexual autonomy. Um, The social uh, psychologist David Lay tells us that he believes, he studies female infidelity, and he believes that female infidelity uh, is the biggest um, trigger of domestic violence Mm -hmm. or the suspicion of female infidelity. Um, Other experts have said that other than uh, mass shootings at schools, one of the most common types of mass shootings um, is when a man uh, goes after a woman who has left him and that, you know, that kind of uh, mass shooting is also a form of gendered coercive control. Um, So in both of those examples, and so they go after the woman and anyone who happens to be with her at the time. Um, So in both of those examples, you see that there are really dire consequences in this country for women who want sexual autonomy, some of us, right? So there's a whole range. There are women leading the polyamory movement, um, like my friend Misha Lin of Open Love New York, um, like Carrie Jenkins, who's a professor of philosophy in Vancouver and wrote a book called What Love Is and is Openly Polyamorous. Um, There are women who are privileged in that way. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's lethal violence. So we have far to go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even people like Misha and um, Carrie Jenkins, um, you know, Carrie Jenkins has written widely about how when she wrote about being polyamorous, um, she was attacked um, by people who, you know, didn't just slut shame her and they, they weren't just using the language of misogyny. They were using the language of racism as well. Um, she has two um, 
partners who are um, of Japanese descent. And um, so there was a lot of racist language about that. And she points out how, you know, female sexual autonomy is an intersectional issue and that, you know, the same people who are going after us um, for being sexually free, you know, that, that she talks about the ways that the discourses of racism and sexism really um, intersect. So for some women, it's still really a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, yeah. It's more dangerous in our country than other places. I feel that I feel that sometimes just walking down the street here, as compared to when I've been in places like Bali and walking down the street. Amsterdam. I felt, Amsterdam, yeah, I felt much much safer mm-hmm. just walking walking there in the way that people um, approached me, spoke to me, looked at me, and it just just a very different energy to it. So I yeah. know that we're we're moving forward ish off and on in certain areas, and there's some places where we have so far to go. We have far to go. There are some places in the world where a woman who's monogamous is considered kind of stingy. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> so like, why would you do that? Didn't yeah. you? Was it you who talked about there's a there's a culture or, or a tribal culture of people where I think mm-hmm. it was you yeah. where where yeah where there was the the men as a rites of passage when they were younger had to learn how to pleasure a woman and bring her to orgasm. Did you say that something about that? <laughs> I talked, um, no, I didn't talk about that, but I talked about how in the Amazon basin, there are these cultures called partable paternity cultures mm. where they believe that it takes several men to create a baby. Mm. And so there's one man whose sperm creates the baby's head, for example, and one man whose sperm creates the baby's body. And then another man who's sperm creates mm. the, the baby's arms so and legs. The more sperm, okay. the better. <laughs> the more sperm, the better. Yeah. But also what happens is this means that women are encouraged to have um, multiple sexual partners um, before and during their pregnancies. Mm-hmm. And then all these men um, then take responsibility. They believe themselves to be fathers of the baby. Mm-hmm. And they believe themselves to be responsible for the baby's well-being. And you can see that this is like cooperative breeding um, still happening. I mean, you see cooperative breeding as our evolutionary prehistory in action. Whenever you see a woman nursing a baby that's not her own, whenever you see yourself caring for a kid that's not your own and keeping that kid safe and worrying, is that kid crossing the street by yourself? Can I help? Or in a partable paternity culture, you see cooperative breeding happening where three guys or two guys believe that's my baby and I'm going to take care of it. And and we see that cooperative breeding is good for our species, not just because we're here, but for example, among the Bari, which is a partable paternity culture, um, the anthropologist Stephen Beckerman found that kids with two dads were much more likely to live until age 15 than kids with only one dad who were much more likely to die before they grew up. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's so funny. I told um, some female journalists about partable paternity cultures in the Amazon and that in these cultures, you know, women were encouraged. uh, They were discouraged from being monogamous. They were encouraged to have multiple sex partners. And those women all said to me, wow, I feel like those countries, those areas of the world need a better tourism campaign. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Well, and I, I love these examples, though, because it helps to remind people that everything that we think about sexuality is all contextual. It's all something that we were taught. It's all something that is based on this specific time and place. And it's a whole bunch of ideas and concepts. And it's not necessarily 
Um, it actually definitely is not set in stone and um, changes from place to place. People just get so stuck in what, what they think is happening for them right now is the way. And then the you, rules, yeah. the but traditions. But you look at the world and it's entirely different everywhere you go. It is, and it just, I like to say that female sexuality happens at the confluence of the clitoris mm. and culture. Mm. Are there biological and anatomical underpinnings to female sexuality? Of course there are, and they're amazing to study, and they're important to understand. But the real thing to understand is that female sexuality is um, flexible, mm. and that depending on its container, it will morph, um, you know, to be as free or as constrained as it will allow to be allowed to be, but make no mistake, women are not more naturally monogamous than men. Um, the science in untrue gets into how just untrue that is. And from the perspective of biology, um, from the perspective of other cultures, from the perspective of what uh, non-human female primates do are, you know, are really dearly held notions about what's natural for human female sexuality really fall apart when we look at the new science and social science. So I hope that people, um, you know, will find it an exciting read, but will also feel set free by it. You know, I really want women to have permission not to cheat necessarily a, a term I hate, not even to be non-monogamous. Some of us love monogamy and we find it cozy, but almost all of us will struggle with it. And I want women to understand that it's just as normal for them to struggle with it as it is for men. And I want them to understand the biological underpinnings for that. I mean, there were great women, reasons for women to be promiscuous until quite, quite recently. You got a better um, range of sperm. You upped the chances that you would get sperm with good sperm motility. You upped the chances that you would get great heterozygosity that would result in a robust pregnancy and a healthy offspring. And you upped the chances that there would be multiple males there to support you in your pregnancy and even provision you and your offspring. So promiscuity, if we want to call it that, uh, has a long, long tail, and it's just as, quote, natural for women as it is for men, if not more so. It's in your DNA, people. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, don't quote me on that. It depends. <laughs> and ecology are really important, too. But there are, there are anthropologists and primatologists now who are making the case that, you know, while there is no one way we evolve to have sex, if we're going to say that one of the sexes evolved for promiscuity, we have to consider that it may well be women, not men. Mm -hmm. So you have, <laughs> <laughs> you have many other books uh, available on your website, other bestsellers. You did talk a little bit about Primates of Park Avenue, which is a number one seller on New York Times. Um, obviously, Untrue is your newest book. Uh, you have that Step Monster book. I'm a Step Monster myself, so I'd love yay, to read yay, that. It's a cult favorite because I just did the crazy thing where I told stepmothers, your feelings matter as much as everybody else's. And people just went crazy. Thank you um, for saying that. Your feelings do matter as much as anybody else's. Yeah. And then I also, your listeners might be interested. I wrote um, a, a, an original story for Amazon called The Button, um, which is all about the clitoris mm -hmm. and the history of our attempts to map it and understand it. I went to um, Costa Rica to the rainforest with my friend, the primatologist Michelle Bazanson, to observe spider monkeys. The female spider monkey has um, a hypertrophied 
uh, clitoris. It's about as big as uh, this, what you would think a spider monkey male's penis would look like. So, and a lot of times people will mistake a female spider monkey for a male spider monkey because her clitoris is so um, pendulous. So um, the button starts in the rainforest in Costa Rica and takes people on a whole long journey to understand the clitoris. That might be of special interest to your podcast listeners. For sure. And if our listeners want to learn more about you, can you give them um, your website and any other information? My website is www.wednesdaymartin.com. And I'm on Instagram at Wednesday Martin PhD. Not because I'm a snob, because Wednesday Martin <laughs> already taken on Twitter. I'm at Wednesday Martin, although I'm not always on Twitter. I consider Twitter to be a really hostile ecology uh, for women, especially women trying to write about sex, although there are women and men on there doing it really well every day. So I won't always answer you on Twitter, but I do tweet. So yeah, you can find me in those places. Are you going to do a book tour? I have been doing a book tour, and my next stop on my book tour is there is a skirt club party in London on Ooh. December 8th. Wait, we might have to get hot octopus yeah. there. I would love to talk to you about that. Can we talk about that? Absolutely. Because, yeah, so there's going to be a skirt club party for, for Untrue on December 8th in London. Um, and go to my website for my other appearances. I'm still, still out there, uh, promoting the book and making appearances and maybe coming to a bookstore near you soon Uh, or a podcast. Oh, our podcast. Yeah. This has been a really great episode. I love learning about just all of your research and the work that you're doing for not only female sexuality, but just all females everywhere and shedding light on so much darkness that exists. Thank you. I'm glad you you guys are doing the same thing. And thank you so much for what you do and for having me on. It was great talking to you. Wednesday, we hope to see you soon. To our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next Tuesday, everyone. Ciao for now. Don't forget to head on over to our website at shamelesssex.com for more. And for 15% off of some of our favorite sex toys, use coupon code SHAMELESSPP in all caps at purepleasureshop.com.